Listen up, get ready, I'm not gonna take no more. There's a revolution, a revelation going on in my soul. Buckle up, get ready, we're not gonna sit back. Hello, all you citizens of the world, be you neighbors, uh, friends, family, comrades. Welcome to another edition of Live from the Heartland. I'm Michael James, I'm here in Chicago, and this would be number 155 since we began doing it via Zoom at the beginning of the pandemic. This is for the week of June 3rd. We are recording it on Wednesday, the 31st of May. And uh, today I've got two really interesting and wonderful guests. We'll have the filmmaker, John DeGraff, talking about a new film he has out on Stuart Udall, who was the Secretary of the Interior way back. And we're gonna have the musician, Barry Goldberg, uh, out of the Electric Flag and uh, various other bands. We're looking forward to talking with him a little later in the day. Um, uh, let's start with some good things. One thing is a sign that good times are about to happen uh, in Native American cultures is when a rare white bison calf or buffalo calf is born. And that happened on May 16th at Bear River State Park in Wyoming. Good thing for Wyoming. Wyoming needs some good things. Um, so this is a signal of uh, good things to come. Uh, apparently, it's not an albino calf. It is actually a calf that has some uh, cattle genetics, which is pretty common. Uh, but we wish that little baby calf uh, a lot of good fortune and hopefully brings a lot of good to the world. Um, some other good things for me this week was those of you who listened to the show last week or watched it or viewed it uh, know that we were pushing the Mo Better Brown show. That's Maurice Mo Better Brown. And he performed up at Space in Evanston. It was truly delightful. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful group. Some great music. I recommend it highly. Mo Better Brown. Maurice Mo Better Brown. And another good thing for me was my friend Jim Canadle, who's been on the show, longtime track coach, now retired. He and I drove down to Charleston, Illinois, home of Eastern Illinois University for the Illinois uh, High School Track and Field Championships for young men or boys. And it was wonderful. In the sun, big stadium, a lot of people from all over, really multinational in terms of you know all different colors of people, people running on the track, uh, some exciting races. And I did meet the Olympian Craig Virgin, uh, and probably we'll have him on the show someday. Okay, well, that's it for some good things. Hopefully on some good things would be the city council here in Chicago meeting this week uh, about funding for asylum seekers who are coming to our city. As many of you know, we've covered this. Uh, the news covers it. It's a happening thing. A lot of people are coming north, uh, crossing into Texas. Texas is sending them to Florida. Then they're sending them to New York. Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. But we have a number of uh, asylum seekers living in our neighborhood here in the 49th Ward, and uh, people are really trying to help out, and the city is going to make some decisions because it's a big task, and the federal government really should be involved in it a bunch more, if they're not. Also in the neighborhood here in the 49th Ward, the Glenwood Sunday Market is opening for business on Sunday, June 4th, and it will run through October 29th. It's 9 to 2. 
It's uh, just south of where the Heartland was located at the corner of Glenwood and Lunch. You can get off the L at the Morsell stop on exit north or south, and it's right there. And uh, there'll be a lot of farmers, a lot of wonderful people from our community coming together each week. And um, I recommend it very highly. Also on Sunday, if you're up this way, you're out and about, I will be on my front porch at Prairie Dancer uh, Front Porch Gallery, 1509 Lunt, a block from the farmer's market with photos, stories, information, ideas. Love to see you, love to talk to you. Um, on the comeback front, uh, way, way back, we had Chesa Boudin on this radio show. He had a new book out. I think it was about Venezuela that. He went on to become uh, the district attorney of uh, San Francisco. And, uh, you know, it was hailed as a victory for progressives and a little bit more lenient on some things. There was a backlash and it was well-funded and uh, he was removed from office. And uh, the new person who's in, uh, there's no compelling evidence that Boudin's policies had made crime worse. Overall, crime in San Francisco was little changed uh, from the time he was in office. But they did, voters did reject his progressive message. And um, I read this today that Chase Boudin is stepping into a new role this week as the founding executive director of the new Criminal Law and Justice Center at my alma mater for graduate school, UC Berkeley. Actually, this is UC Berkeley School of Law. I was in sociology. Anyhow, the new job uh, is wide ranging, will involve teaching researching the effects of changes in criminal justice laws in California, advocate new laws, and uh, who knows what else they will do. Some bad news really tore me up a little bit to read what's going on in Uganda. Um, and many of you who follow the news know that there have been some really draconian uh, anti-LGBT laws being passed in Africa in general, and particularly in Uganda. And they just passed a bill and the president signed it over and above criticisms from the West, from the UN, from Biden, et cetera, et cetera. Now that if you engage in uh, even consenting adults, adults engaging in sex together, male sex, female sex, they can uh, get put in jail for life and in some cases face the death penalty. Pretty draconian. Another thing that's uh, interesting to me and a little bit sad is to see the breakup over the LGBT issues of uh, the Methodist Church. There have certainly been conservative uh, denominations or branches of the Methodist Church, as well as some progressive ones. A lot of battle going on about people, uh, you know, in the ministry, LGBT people, etc. But according to an article I read, I think it was the Washington Post, could have been New York Times, a number of uh, people are leaving the church and setting up other setups. It's too bad that people don't work it out and that uh, the lines are really being drawn. Uh, another thing that's a little, probably a little negative, and we're waiting to hear, the Supreme Court is going to make a decision on affirmative action in colleges. It's uh, possibly another attempted preventative stab at the enhancement of our nation's diversity. Uh, it's really too bad. Um, and... Uh, the Supreme Court has moved so far to the right. Also out of D.C., you know, uh, the debt ceiling question still remains. Uh, it's only Wednesday. It got out of committee. 
there's people on both sides who don't like it. There's a lot of cases being made, how it's necessary. So we shall see how that all shakes out. We'll keep you posted. Uh, more negativo. We got more shootings. In Chicago, I believe 11 people were killed over the weekend. And at least 16 people have been killed across more than a dozen mass shootings in the U.S. over Memorial Day weekend. Nine people were also injured in a shooting in Hollywood Beach, California. Back to the good. The Northwestern University women's lacrosse team took the NCAA, National Collegiate Athletic Association, lacrosse title. That is good news. And um, in case you missed last week, we had the filmmakers John Anderson and Bob Sarles on with their new film, uh, Born in Chicago. It's a wonderful film. Uh, look it up. It's coming up. There's going to be performances in the city here or uh, showings of it. And uh, a little bit later on in the show, we are going to have Barry Goldberg, who was also in that film. But um, those fellows were really great last week, as were Koya Paz and Katrina Dion uh, talking about Free Street Theater. Let me just say that a lot of you people I talk to, they listen to the show or they stream it on Saturday mornings or now Wednesday at 8. But you can always get it at uh, Spotify and Google Podcasts under Live from the Heartland. And a really good way to hear it, see it, watch it, is if you go to youtube.com slash heartlandmedia slash videos. Um, our engineer, Hal, puts in a lot of pictures. Um, it's quite enjoyable, and you can get it anytime you want, probably forever, hopefully so. Okay, that's it. That's it for the opening discussions, banner, information, passing. I'm Michael James. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial or however you're getting the show, and we will be back in a few minutes with our first guest, filmmaker John DeGraff. Come on and take a walk with me through this green and growing land. Walk through the meadows and the mountains and the sand. Walk through the valleys and the rivers and the plains. Walk through the sun and walk through the rain. Here's a land full of power and glory. Beauty that words cannot recall. All her power shall rest on the strength of her freedom. Glory shall rest on us all. From Colorado, Kansas, and the Carolinas. Okay, we're back. We're back with more Live from the Heartland for the week of June 3rd. And we are recording this on the 31st of May. And it really brings me a lot of pleasure to bring on our next guest, someone we had on Live from the Heartland years ago when he had a new film and book out called Affluenza. Uh, the one and only, the one and only John DeGraff, who I first learned about when he wrote a piece for the Coevolution Quarterly on the Vondervogel, hippies basically in Germany, who went back to the land and then became supporters of Hitler and the Nazi regime. And I found it interesting at the time because there were a lot of people in the United States wanting to... Uh, uh, go back to the land, so to speak, and I was encouraging people to stay and be involved in the struggle. So John wrote that article. Uh, he came on the show one time, and now he has a new movie out. I'll let him tell you about it. But let me say, finally, hello to you, John DeGraff. Hello to you, Mike James. It's been, been a while, but it's great to reconnect. It's good. So you have a new film out about Stuart Udall, who really yes. is an exemplary figure who uh, expanded federal lands. He was a part of the government at different levels. 
He created national parks, seashores, lakeshores, et cetera. So you have a new film out, Stuart Udall and the Politics of Beauty. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, Stu Udall was the Secretary of the Interior during that uh, tumultuous time when you and I were at Berkeley and other places and the Vietnam War was going on. So during both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, Stu Udall was the Secretary of the T Interior, which meant that he was in charge of all of our public lands. And in so doing, I think he became the most famous Interior Secretary. He created more additions to our national park system, national monuments, wildlife refuges, all these kinds of things than any Interior Secretary in history. But he uh, was not just that. He was also a, a, a strong fighter for civil rights. Uh, he integrated the national park system, which in 1961 was actually still segregated. There were no black rangers in our national parks. He forced the then Washington Redskins, now the commanders, to uh, integrate. They were the only NFL team that wouldn't hire black players at that time. And they played in the national stadium, which the Department of the Interior controlled. And so Stewart said, if you want to play here, if you want us to lease this stadium, you have to stop discriminating. You have to hire black athletes. Uh, they did that, and they hired two that year, and they became a much better team. And the Washington Post even suggested that Stuart Udall should be named NFL Coach of the Year because no one had done more to improve <laughs> the status of a team. But uh, Stuart was very committed to civil rights. He uh, he uh, integrated the University of Arizona when he was a basketball star there in the 1940s. It was a segregated university. Blacks could not in, in, uh, eat in the cafeteria. Stuart forced a change in that. He and his brother Mo by bringing their black friends with them to the cafeteria and saying, kick us out. And the administration, administration backed down because they were, the, they were the most popular guys on, on campus, so to speak. But Stewart was also uh, involved in so many other issues. Later on, after he was out of Interior, he spent 10 years of his life fighting for folks who were the victims of nuclear fallout from uh, uh, atmospheric nuclear tests in the Nevada desert during the Cold War, and for uh, Navajo uranium miners who were also victims of, of the atomic era. And uh, he finally succeeded in getting compensation for those people through Congress, although he lost in the courts uh, time after time. He was the first public official to uh, talk at all about global warming and the threat that that was, and he did that in the mid-1960s. So he was a guy very much ahead of his time in many ways. Let's look a little bit at uh, his his foresight. I mean, you mentioned global warming. He was really ahead of his time on a lot of stuff, you know, and he, um, he was reading Rachel Carlson, who uh, wrote some great stuff about the environment, right? And uh, yeah. He, uh, yeah, her birthday was just the other day. Uh, Rachel Carson wrote the famous book, Silent Spring. Uh, and of course, the pesticide industry, who she criticized because it was killing the birds with all these poisons, uh, hated her and they tried to stop her. But Stewart believed in what she was doing and he introduced her to John Kennedy. Uh, he uh, became a friend of hers and a mentor and really helped her message get out because he believed in it. And that was a, a, a kind of a... a a, a courageous thing for a politician to do at that time, given the power of, of these chemical industries. Let's talk a little bit about his upbringing. He grew up, he's a Mormon. He was a Mormon. Yes. Uh, he balked at that later on, but, uh, you know, we don't hear about too many liberal or progressive Mormons. 
I mean, there are some, I've known a number over my lifetime, but uh, he's living out in Arizona. His family is Republican. Uh, he ends up going to Congress. He runs as a Democrat. Um, talk a little bit about him being a Mormon and what that, the opportunities that created for him, as well as probably some, uh, some barriers to doing the things he wanted to do. Well, during the 1930s, many Mormons actually in the rural West became Democrats because they saw what the New Deal did for people. Uh, they then became, seemed sadly, Republicans again during the Cold War and the McCarthy era. But during the 30s, the state of Utah, for example, was solidly Democratic. Right. And okay. the state of Arizona was, was Democratic. And Stewart's father, who was a Republican, switched to the Democratic Party. He was an attorney and a, a rancher in Arizona, who later became the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and did many progressive rulings. But anyway, Stewart's dad said to his kids, look, he said, you know, we're out in this godforsaken place here in the middle of the desert because no one wanted us to be where we were before, which was in Illinois and Missouri and places, and they pushed us out. And so Brigham Young went west because we had to kind of find a place where we could live and not be discriminated against. And he said, and now there are many other people in our society who are discriminated against. And so we have an obligation to, to support them as we would have wanted to be supported in, in our case. And that idea about social justice really uh, became a part of Stewart's life and his upbringing at the age of, uh, 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 in 1947, when he came and returned to the University of Arizona from World War II or 1946, he and his brother immediately joined the NAACP in Tucson to push for civil rights. So, yeah, he was somewhat unusual, certainly would be unusual for a Mormon today, but less unusual at the time. Aha, uh -huh, good point. Um, he also liked poetry a lot, and he talked about uh, the environment, you know, in terms of its beauty and its glory. Absolutely, and he, you know, he... Robert Frost, when Stewart went to Congress in 1955, Robert Frost was the uh, official poet of Congress. But the fact is nobody in Congress paid any attention to him. <laughs> he, you know, I wasn't too happy about that. But Stewart liked love poetry. His mother had read it to him as a kid. The, those Mormon families in the West loved poetry and, and drama and those kind of things and dance and, and music and all of that. So... He, uh, we went to Robert Frost and he said, I'd like to get to know you, you know, I'd like to support you. And they became close friends. Uh, and Stewart proposed that John Kennedy have Robert Frost read a poem at his inaugural, which happened. And then Stewart actually went with Robert Frost in 1962 to the Soviet Union. He was the first U.S. cabinet member to visit the Soviet Union ever, period. And he went supposedly to look at their energy grid and talk about energy issues with, with the Russians and with Russian scientists. But really his goal in Frost's was to meet with Premier Nikita Khrushchev, which Udall did, and talk about ending the nuclear arms race. And how far they got, it's hard to say, but the next year, of course, we, the Cuban Missile Crisis intervened and came shortly after, but at least it didn't end in a disaster that people thought it might. And a year later, Khrushchev and Kennedy signed the, the uh, atmospheric nuclear test ban. Uh, John, uh, one of the things that uh, caught my attention, it's in the film, is uh, how Stuart Udall reversed his position on a couple of things, not only the creation of dams uh, and certain dams, but also the Vietnam War. And he, yeah. he had to take a position 
uh, you know, he had to decide, am I going to speak out about certain things and then no longer be the Secretary of the Interior? Or do I stay in and get some stuff done? Talk a little bit about that and the choices he had to make and how he handled them. Absolutely. So the first choice was over whether we should have dams in the Grand Canyon, which was at that time proposed. No one would even think that imaginable now, but at that time they actually had plans. They had actually started construction of two power dams in the Grand Canyon that would have flooded part of the, of the national park. And Stewart was, had been a supporter of dams. He was a rural Westerner. He was from Arizona where you could not be against water development and dams because that was what the whole thing was all about. You got well, Arizona's want water. And so Stewart knew that if he spoke out against these, if he stopped these dams, which he could do as Secretary of the Interior, he would never be able to run for office in Arizona again. And everybody thought he might be the next senator, governor, and so forth. So he he had faced this very tough choice. And he said, well, I got to let the river tell me what to do. So he took his kids on a raft trip down the Grand Canyon. And he was so struck by the beauty of it and the place that he said, there will be no dams here. And that doomed him from any further role in politics in Arizona. The second decision he made, which was very difficult for him, was his position on the Vietnam War. Stewart initially supported the war. He was one of those people who was worried about the domino theory and all that. It was a genuine feeling, but he very quickly, once the war started, came to realize that the war was a disaster, that it was a, a terrible mistake, that it was killing Americans, killing Vietnamese, destroying the environment. And so he turned against the war and he started speaking to Johnson and the cabinet, and especially Robert McNamara, uh, uh, against the war. But, uh, and his brother, Mo, who agreed with him, who was in Congress, gave a public speech against the war. And Stewart had to decide, do I do that too? Do I step out and make a public speech against the war in which Johnson will fire me for sure? Because Johnson had said, if you go and do what your brother did, you're done, you know, get, better look for a new job. So you don't have to make a hard decision. And he decided that he should keep his fight inside. He should keep pushing Johnson. He should keep pushing McNamara and these people. But he should not go public and give up his job because he was Johnson was so supportive of his environmental measures, and he wanted to keep those things going. And yeah, indeed, Johnson, that's what he did. And, and that's, and that's what he did. In the film, how uh, Johnson really, in a way, needed him to take people's minds off the war. Uh, but Stewart's one of his kids defected from the the army and went to Canada, right? Right. His son Scott, his second son, who's the only one of his kids I've never met because he's no longer living. But Scott um, uh, defected from the army and he uh, deserted, and he he went to New Mexico. And his friend Jack Leffler, who's in the film, was able to help him get to Canada, where Scott then lived for quite a few years. This was hard for Udall because, you know, he's in this big position in government and his son is a deserter. Yes. But Udall supported his son, you know, and he said that my son has his own conscience. I support his conscience. And, you know, and, and of course, he personally opposed, opposed the war, too. Uh, Scott came back under the Carter amnesty to the U.S. and ended up being a, a social worker in Flagstaff, Arizona. But, yeah, these were the kind of choices that Udall had to face. And. He felt that first and foremost, he had to do his job as an interior secretary. And he did push hard. And it's interesting that uh, Craig McNamara, who's the son of Robert McNamara, who was a very strong anti-war 
kid himself at oh. the time uh, says, saw the film and wrote to me and said that uh, even his dad and Stuart were good friends. They went backpacking together. They liked each other on a personal basis. And he said he, he had no idea because his dad never told him that Stuart was against the war. Uh, his dad wouldn't talk about that. He said, so when he saw my film, it made him admire Stuart even more. And he said, you know, I only wish that my dad had listened to Stuart Udall. <laughs> Uh, John DeGrapp, uh, in the film, uh, you talk about, uh, or you don't talk about, but you show uh, a really a strong relationship between Stuart Udall and Lady Bird Johnston, the wife of the president, Lyndon Baines Johnson, as well as David Brower of the Sierra Club. And that caught my attention because I remember meeting David Brower in the Heartland Cafe's general store when he had oh. been there eating. And I didn't know who he was, but I got filled in pretty quickly. Talk a little bit about the relationship he had with both those people and what it meant. Sure. sure. When he got, uh, you know, of course, he had met Lady Bird when, when he was uh, there under Kennedy. But uh, there were people who told him, if you want to get to LBJ, go through Lady Bird because she actually listens. He listens to what she has to say. And so he, uh, he got Lady Bird to go with him on a trip around the West in 1964. And on a trip down the Snake River in the Grand Teton National Park, he kind of uh, jawboned her about, you should make a name for yourself as a conservationist. I know you love nature. I know all these things. That you should start with a beautification campaign. and You should really become... A, a symbol of conservation. And Lady Bird later in her memoir said, well, Stu was an excellent salesman. And he convinced me that this was for me. And she became, she started with a beautification campaign in, in Washington, D.C. and in places. A lot of people kind of chuckled at that and felt, oh, isn't that sweet? But Lady Bird was actually a much stronger environmentalist than that. And she pushed for many things that ruffled um, big corporate feathers uh, another thing, so she and Stuart were very good friends, and she shared Stuart's values and ideas and, and vice versa. David Brower was Stuart's, uh, he was the, probably the most important environmental figure outside of government at that point. And mostly they, they were on the same side of things. They worked together to create Point Reyes National Seashore in California, for example. But they clashed on the dam, Grand Canyon dams because uh, David knew right from the start that this was a terrible idea, and Stewart initially was supporting it because, as an Arizona politician, he had to. And so David bombarded Stewart with letters and various kinds of things, and um, uh, and of course Stewart changed his mind and he stopped the dams. And from that point on, David and Stewart were extremely close. Um, instead of being on the same side ninety percent of the time, they were probably on the same side almost a hundred. 100% of the time. And, uh, you know, they, their cooperation was very important, and, and they both re respected each other uh, very much. I met Stuart Udall when I was making a film about David Brower for PBS in, in 1989, and I, in 88, and that's when I first interviewed Stuart and met him and was very impressed by him because he was so humble. And he basically said, look, I was wrong. David Brower persuaded me I was wrong, he said. And for that, I'm in his debt, no question about it. How often do you hear that kind of thing from a politician? Not very often. <laughs> yeah, my, I'm in my critic's debt because he changed my mind and showed me I was wrong. That, that's, uh, that's what made me admire Stuart in the first place.
Is that the reason you what 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 led you to make this movie? Yeah, well, it was a, it was partly that that I met Stuart, but I I wasn't thinking about making a film until I saw a piece in the paper. I don't even know if it was the Times, the Post, what it was, but it was those things where it says a hundred years ago today. You've seen those in the newspapers and said a hundred years ago today. Um, Stuart Udall, Secretary of the Interior, was born. And I thought, Stuart Udall, wow, you know, I wonder what ever happened to him. I kind of lost touch. And, and you, uh, so, you probably had some footage of him, right? Well, just that interview yeah. that I did. Yeah, I had that. So I um, I looked up, uh, you know, started doing some research, and then this guy's pretty amazing. I knew about his environmental stuff in the parks, and I knew about the Grand Canyon Dams. I didn't know anything about his commitment to civil rights or peace or or the other thing, the arts, which he was also in any, I didn't know anything about that. So I became more interested and I checked and nobody had done a film about him. And so I got to do this, you know, this is my calling is to make a film about this guy because he deserves it. And this is a quintessential American story about the sixties. And it's a good way to teach young people about all kinds of things in addition to, to, to inspire them through Stewart's work. Well, let's talk a little bit about his family. I mean, in the film, there are he had a lot of kids and they got grandkids, and uh, you know, he's got brother who was a pilot. Talk that it's a unique family, and they yeah. all seem to be doing really good. Um, you know, I had a hard time keeping track of who was the senator from where. It was his brother from Arizona, <laughs> I guess? And I, I don't know. know. Was there any any Udalls in Utah that were elected? I couldn't keep track anymore, but. Talk a little no, bit about his family and all those people. Not in Utah. Uh, his <laughs> oldest son, Tom, became a U.S. senator, served two terms as U.S. senator from New Mexico. Tom was a fantastic guy, and he was, you know, my best source for information about yeah. his dad. And he said, you know, that family just imbued them all that what you got to do is public service. That, that's what it's all about. You have to help other others and, and serve. So Tom is a great U.S. senator, and he is now the U.S. ambassador to New Zealand. So uh, and while he was there, well, there when he, with the film, he used one time showed the film. He loved, he seemed to love the film. And he showed it to Caroline Kennedy. Who is the is the ambassador to Australia? They watched it together and talked about their dads and Tom said they said that was quite a great experience. But yeah, you don't had uh, six kids. Scott is the only one who passed away. And I interviewed Dennis, who uh, it works for George Lucas in California. Jay, who's a poet in Virginia, and Lynn, who's a uh, former teacher in Santa Fe, New Mexico. But they're all great people. And then I interviewed Lynn's son, Bryce, who Stewart's grandson, who took care of Stewart when he was a high school student, when, when Stewart was in, uh, by himself in old age, and he was losing his eyesight and everything. And Bryce, is just, Bryce is a wonderful guy. He's an actor in New York City now. Uh, but it's quite a family, and so is Moe's family. I know uh, Anne, Anne Udall, Moe's, uh, uh, one of Mo's daughters is the head of Planned Parenthood of Oregon. She and I are going to be on a panel together in Bend, Oregon in two weeks. Um, his uh, daughter, Mo's daughter, Kate, is the narrator of the film. What's the relationship of the young fellow who is the mayor of, uh, of some small town? Is it St. John's? St. John's, yeah. That's where yeah. Stuart grew up. And it's then, a one-horse podunk place in the middle of nowhere. You know, but there's yeah. a Udall who's a mayor there now, right? 
Spence. Yeah, Spence is the mayor. There's still a lot of Udalls in in uh, St. John's. It's become much more of a Republican town nowadays. It's very Mormon, and Spence is Mormon, but Spence is a Democrat, and Spence definitely, um, you know, shares most of Stewart's views uh, on What's things. What's their relationship? Uh, they're kind of cousin, distant cousin. They, it's it's about because of Mormons. They had the same paternal. I mean, Stuart's grandfather was was um, Spence's great great grandfather, but Spence is descended from a different wife. Because in those okay. days, the Mormons practiced polygamy. <laughs> All right. So let me let's round this up by talking about how, in a lot of ways, this is an, a, a monumental person, uh, environmentalist all kind of visions, uh, and we don't hear much about him. So what is his legacy? What's important for people to know about him and for us to try to share to the masses so that they can get a sense of what came before uh, and how we missed the boat perhaps on doing more about it when we had a chance and now we're being really pushed to deal with the environment. Well, I think the sad thing, and you and I both know this, Mike, is that Lyndon Johnson, who did many good things, completely destroyed his legacy with his, with his uh, hubris about the Vietnam War and his yeah. inability to get out of that war. If it hadn't been for that war, I think Johnson would go down as one of our greatest presidents. And I think Stewart and all of them would be more well-known, but it was hard to focus on all those good things he was doing and Johnson was doing when we had a war in our faces. I think that was a big deal. But I think Stewart... Uh, really does offer, I mean, I think his idea of a politics of beauty, that the whole concept of protecting nature and creating parks for people and protecting clean air and clean water and all those things which he did and which are being threatened now by the Supreme Court and others, those things that Stewart did brought people together. That was his view that you could, this was, these were issues that could be bipartisan. They're less so now, but in those days they were. A lot of Republicans supported Stuart Udall, and Southern Democrats, who were racist and hated Stuart's views on on race, opposed him. You know, so it was a, it was a, it was a different time when uh, um, you know the the parties were different. There was more bipartisanship. Uh, in some cases, it was extreme bipartisanship because the Wild and Scenic Rivers Bill, which now protects 250 rivers in the United States from any kind of development, that passed unanimously in the United States Senate. That was a Stuart Udall bill. It passed 265 to 7 in the U.S. House. I mean, that's how much support there was. And to add to that, the bill that during the Trump administration, the most bipartisan bill that passed, and very few bills did, but the most bipartisan was the Great American Outdoors Act, which is about funding our parks, funding the Land and Water Conservation Fund that gives all kinds of support to cities to, for their environment and everything. And that uh, bill was sponsored in Congress. The top sponsor in the Senate was Tom Udall, Stewart's son. The top sponsor in the House was Deb Holland, who is a Native American woman who's now our Secretary of the Interior and is also in the film. But that, uh, that passed heavily, two-thirds to three-quarters in both houses. Trump signed it, but it would he, it would have gone over his veto if he hadn't, hadn't signed it. I think it shows that this is an issue, the protection of nature and parks, and, that can help bring people together in this very polarized time, and it's something Stuart believed in. 
Uh, how do people get to see the film, order the film, and any parting shots that you'd like to yeah, share? Yeah, sure. Well, no, I don't know about parting shots, but... That's uh, a bad the word these days. I'm, as a photographer guy, some of the time, I got to <laughs> look for other words for taking pictures. <laughs> That's good. You know, my son, uh, a lot of all the Pacific Northwest video in the film is shot by my son, who's quite a, a nature photographer. And yeah, he loves which is, it's, you know, about the only thing he probably got from me was to love nature. But anyway, it's a, it's a great thing. And uh, the film is available from Bullfrog Films. It's um, bullfrogfilms.com. They're in Pennsylvania, and they're the largest distributor of environmental media in the world. And uh, I think they love this film, and so they're trying to make it available as inexpensively as possible for community groups, for schools, for universities, and for uh, individuals. So uh, bullfrogfilms.com, Stuart Udall film, you'll, you'll find it there. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of screenings in colleges and universities. I want to do more. So I'm always open to anybody who, who wants me to come and show the film. Uh, we've done about 40 so far. Even uh -huh. doing some in Europe in the summer. There's an interest in the film in Europe, too, which I'm excited about. Well, John DeGraff, it's always a pleasure talking to you, seeing you. I'm glad we hooked up again. And, uh, you know, when I get to the West Coast, I think you're up in the Northwest, Seattle or someplace. That's right. Uh, I went up and saw my friend Megacy not too long ago. And if I had known, I'd probably try to get to see you too. But next time. The pleasure was all mine. And keep up the good work. I will. And we'll be in touch. Solidarity forever. <laughs> right on, brother. And everyone out there, you stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland. We're going to have a little bit of music interview with Barry Goldberg. And uh, don't go anywhere. Stay tuned here on the left end of your dial. live from the heartland for the week of june 3rd i'm michael james i'm here in chicago and uh for the rest of our show we're going to talk with someone who has been inspirational to many with his music um his understanding his grasp of the blues and more uh coming home to chicago barry goldberg hello barry hi michael how are you i'm good so uh, we uh, last week we had a couple of fellows on named John Anderson and Bob Sarles, who you know well, and they are the directors and producers of this new movie, Born in Chicago, which is about the passing of the torch, so to speak, or the coming together of the blues masters and the young fellows running around the city at that time who got to know them, appreciate them, and learn some of their licks. Uh, you're coming back. You're going to play a couple of concerts. Uh, we'll give those at the end. And the movie that you're in is going to be shown at the Cultural Center uh, on Friday. But I think it's sold out already. Well, let's do this. Are you excited about coming home? I'm always excited about coming home. And Chicago is my home. And uh, I'm a fan of all the Chicago sports teams. Never really got into Los Angeles that much, California, although I've been here for almost over 45 years. 
But every time I get to come home to see my friends and my family, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's wonderful for me. Well, it's a great town, and we wish you would move back here maybe. But um, I uh, got to say that I grew up a Brooklyn Dodger fan, but I can never get into the Los Angeles Dodgers. I'm sticking with the White Sox, a little bit of Cubs, and the rest of the teams. So when you come back, you're going to be uh, – uh, they're going to show this movie that you did some of the um, actual soundtrack for, the, the music, along with Jimmy Favino. Tell us about the, the music and the movie Born in Chicago. Well, it was a concept that I, I, I thought of with a couple of the other guys that are survivors of that period when we were teenagers, and we would discover that music on the radio. And uh, it was bad enough for our families that we were into rock and roll, but the blues was a whole other element. And it just was, when I first heard it, it was WGES, Jam with Sam, Sam Evans. I heard his theme song, Little Walter's Blue Lights. And that just freaked me out and took me to another world, another planet. And it was sort of like my passport for free, for freedom at that time, because uh, I I was sort of a, a, a misfit, you know, not not uh, able to go to my regular high school. Had to leave two or three different high schools. So not knowing it, but there were others like myself, and we all sort of gathered at uh, Jazz Record Mart and a couple other record stores and discovered our love of this music called the blues. And it was in our own backyard at that time. It was a special time in Chicago where the artists were Muddy Waters and Howling Wolf and Little Walter. And, and we just had to find out firsthand where this music was coming from. I uh, remember in 1962, I was going to Lake Forest College and I was doing a paper on the socialization of the Negro jazz musician or something. And I had read an article in Downbeat about reverse prejudice in jazz. And so I, I went to some clubs, you know, and I talked to different people. I talked to Iris Sullivan, but I also met Charlie Musselwhite in the basement at uh, the Jazz Record Mart down below Roosevelt University on Wabash there. And maybe I bumped into you there too, who knows? That's quite possible. Charlie and I did a, with Harvey Mandel and Fred Bilo and little Bob Anderson, we did an album together called Stand Back. Oh, yeah. You got, uh, tell us, tell our uh, listeners and our viewers some of the other bands that you were in. I mean, you uh, worked with Steve Miller. You had the Goldberg Steve Miller Band. You had uh, the Two Jews Blues Band. Tell us about uh, some of those groups and how you met Mike Bloomfield who I actually met at that same time, too, when he brought some blues artists to Lake Forest College. Yeah, Michael was an entrepreneur, entrepreneur at that time at 16. We met, uh, we were in rival bands and vying for who would do the next Sweet 16 parties. Like, and, and we'd play for all over high schools. And it was a rock and roll band primarily. But that's when we first met. And then we met later on at a high school that we were we were going to called Central YMCA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> downtown Chicago. Yeah, where all the kids who got kicked out of the other schools ended up. We all wound up in Central Y. First, it was Bateman, 
which is a private school for delinquents. <laughs> and then there was the uh, the Central YMCA. So Michael and I became instant friends. And he turned me on. He took me out of, you, know, and you don't belong on Rush Street. You belong on Old Town. And then we, we started hanging out together on, on Well Street. And then he said, why don't we come on down to the south side and west side and we can maybe strike out these relationships with the old masters. At that time, there were the young masters, Howling Wolf and Muddy Waters and Otis Rush. And we formed relationships and eventually got to sit in with them. Uh, that's great. And have you stayed friends with any of them who's alive or any of their kids? Well, Nick Rabinitis and I are really good friends. Corky Siegel is a good friend of mine. Yeah, I see Charlie Corky. Mark Charlie Musselwhite is we're very close, and uh, Harvey Mandel, of course. And uh, we, we had a band called the Chicago Blues Reunion together. And uh, like the legendary late, great Sam Lay occasionally played drums with us. And uh, we, we have a couple of CDs out that, that we, we work together. Uh, you know, I th think I read that you had uh, you had played at the Newport Folk Festival with Dylan, and I think that would that have been the time when everyone got Pete Seeger and other folks were outraged that Dylan won electric. Uh, was that the same time you played with him? And can you share that, what that was like? Yeah, that was. I originally came uh, asked to play with the Butterfield Band, Paul Butterfield, and Paul. Yeah. Uh, we all went to Newport. Rhode Island from Chicago, and we all left and we drove in the car. It was quite a road trip. And then when we got there, uh, Paul had a producer. His name was Paul Rothschild. And Rothschild said, I'm sorry, but no keyboards in this band. I don't hear keyboards. I'm a piano player. So uh, I didn't have a gig at that time. And I was left really stranded without a gig in a strange place. Until Michael introduced me to Bob Dylan, who was there to do something really new and different in his career. He was going to plug in and go electric amongst an all-folk crowd. You know, that was really a controversial thing to do in his career. But uh, it was very controversial. Most of the people were, were not used to it and didn't accept it. But what Bob did at that moment when we played... And I got to play keyboards with him along with Al Cooper. Sam Lay was on drums. Jerome Arnold from the Butterfield Band was on bass. And Mike Bloomfield was a guitar player. So he created, at that moment, folk rock. And it was a real magical high moment in my career. What do you, what do you remember about the crowd? Were they mostly uh, panning or were they, uh, I would imagine, a lot of people liked it? It was about 50-50. Yeah. And the people that couldn't accept it because they knew they had sensed that not the end had come, but it was an ending of a certain era for them. And uh, Bob, they felt betrayed by Bob, but Bob took the next step in his career, which, thank God, he did. Yeah. And became uh, electric rock, folk uh, rock. Yeah, that was great. You know, uh, Lynn Orman is our music producer for this show, and I know you know Lynn, and she uh, she told me uh, to ask you about growing up at Foster and Sheridan. 
and to talk a little bit about your mom who was in Yiddish theater. Can you share a little bit of that time in your life? Yes, of course. My mother was born on Maxwell Street. Uh -huh. Maxwell and Halston, and then she went to grammar school there. And then later on met my father. They were both working at Western Union. And they got together, and, and a few years later, I came along. And I was actually born in Albany Park for the first six months of my life. Then we moved to Sheridan Road in Foster. And she was a piano player, and she appeared on the Yiddish stage in her younger days. Uh, she was comparable to the New York version, who, who was Molly Pecan, and another famous Yiddish actress. And my mother just couldn't handle it, like nerve-wise, so she left the Yiddish stage to marry my father and kept playing the piano and singing. And eventually, that's where I got my piano chops from. She was a stride barrel house Nettie, they called her, Nettie Goldberg. And uh, we would play duets on the piano together when I was five. And uh, that's that's basically, I, uh, they had some records in the house that I listened to. And I really was turned on by Mead Lux Lewis, the boogie-woogie piano player. <laughs> and uh, of course, Otis Spann became my hero and my idol, and Johnny Johnson taught me a little bit of my left hand, how to, how to move it along a little better than I than I was doing it. I remember Otis Spann, I remember seeing him. He was with, he's one of the people that Mike Bloomfield uh, brought to Lake Forest College in the early 60s, Otis Spann and St. Louis Jimmy, as I recall. And I don't know any more about it than that, that's all I remember. St. Louis Jimmy, that? that's amazing, because he's from St. You know, Louis. No, I never heard of that before. That's great. I don't know. I, you know, that's what I remember. And I, you know, sometimes it's up. It's still good, and you never know, though. You um, never know when it's going to work. <laughs> that's the truth. Now, um, Barry, you have a new band, I hear, and uh, you're going to be uh, playing, I think, with your new band along with a fellow named Rob Stone, a couple of gigs next weekend. Uh, you want to tell us about your new band and how it came to be? Yes, it's uh, a band we play around looking for people that have soulful chops around Los Angeles. And it was a hard, hard search, believe me, because uh, it's a different kind of style of music. So uh, I'm looking for rock and roll people that can play the blues. And Jimmy Vivino fit right, fit right in, and he's a great guitar player. And Rob Stone is like one of the best harp players I've heard in a long, long time. I call him Rob Stone with the big boss tone. Nice. And <laughs> we're going to be playing some concerts together when we get to Chicago. Rob is a young kid who, who didn't grow up in Chicago, but knows more about Chicago and Little Walter and Sonny Boy than a lot of blues harp players. Oh, great. You know, I... Uh... I'm going to be out of town next weekend, so I'm not going to get to come hear you, but I'm, I'm going to hopefully I do it another time. Let me just run over the things that I've got down that I want to share with the listeners, that there is a showing of the film Born in Chicago on Friday, June 9th in the afternoon at the Cultural Center, but I think it's sold out, although it is going to be streamed, and I'm not sure how one does that. Um, then on the day before, on Thursday, 
Uh, Barry and I think Rod Stone will be doing a broadcast, an interview with a, someone named Leslie Kiros at a place called Piano Forte, 1335 Michigan Avenue. And then on Friday night after the Blues Festival, around 9.30 at Reggie's 2105 South State Street, you're going to be featured along with the Chicago Blues Super Session Band, which includes Billy Flynn, Bob Stroger, Kenny Beady Eyes Smith, Dave Katzman, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, Melvin Smith, Roosevelt Purifoy, Omar Coleman, Oscar Wilson, and Amy Lowe, who was on the show a few weeks ago. How's that for a lot of work for you? Are they going to be able to uh, keep up with all that? How's your health and stuff these days? I'm, I'm in training right now, boot camp. My wife is a drill instructor. That's They're good for that. I mean, they're wonderful for many reasons, but they're also, as guys get older, I know I'm a little bit older than my wife, and she's a pretty good drill instructor. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, what did I not ask you that you really think is important and pertinent that you want to share with your hometown folks here and beyond? Give us a little bit of your uh, wisdom, your views on the world, your hopes, your aspirations, whatever you'd like to share. Well, everywhere I wander, everywhere I roam, I always keep in my heart that Chicago is my home. I like that. You ever do that to a tune? No. Maybe not. <laughs> that, that, that's how I feel. I get excited. That's This is the town where my, my father was born or my grandfather came when he was an immigrant from Russia. And they all settle in Chicago. And I have, I have relatives in Elgin, Illinois and all over the place, and, and friends from high school that are coming to the gig, too, you know, all my old buddies, and it's it's more than just a reunion. It, it's a moment where my heart is, is fulfilled with love and, and enjoyment. Oh, that's great. And uh, do you plan to, after your uh, weekend of heavy duty here in Chicago, uh, you're going to take it any other places? You got any other events lined up uh, beyond Chicago? Well, in Chicago, the first stop is Al's Beef. <laughs> you know, there's a new, uh, I think there's a new series on one of those TV stations called The Bear, and it's about an Italian beef shop. Oh, yeah, Check I know it out. I get really homesick every time I watch that. But that right, on, right after I get off the plane, the driver's going to take us to Al's Beef in Little Italy. All right. Well, you enjoy that, and you keep on cranking out this wonderful music. And um, I do have a photograph I took of James Cotton and Muddy Waters. I don't know who was playing with them. I always think it was Corky Siegel, and uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm not sure who it was. It was at a place called the Fat Black Pussycat in '62. Uh, do you have any memory of that place? No, I don't. But you know, Michael and I produced a James Cotton album called The Verve Years, James Cotton and Verve. And uh, James was a beautiful person. We loved him. That was a really good record, too. Yeah, I, I last time I saw him was up at Space. He was playing up there. Uh, it's probably five years ago, but maybe a little longer. Anyhow, it's really an honor to have you on the Live from the Heartland show. I, uh, I'm going to encourage all my friends and people to go out and check you out uh, while you're here in Chicago. I'm sorry that I won't be able to go, but I'll be having a pretty good time in El Paso. 
And um, well, have a great time, Michael, and hopefully one day we'll meet. Yeah, we will. I got your email now, so look out. You'll be getting all kind of propaganda from me. That's cool. <laughs> okay, brother. We want Take to thank care. everybody who tuned in today for Live from the Heartland. Uh, we want to thank all the people who came on the show, particularly Barry Goldberg and John DeGraff. I want to thank my engineer, Hal James, and all the people who at WLUW, uh, Can TV, et cetera, et cetera, who back us up. And remember, do what athletes united for peace do. Do sports, not war. And remember to do good in the world because the world needs all the good that you do, that Barry does, that I do, that John does, that Hal does, and all of us do. All power to the people. Over and out. Amen. Are you doing the best you can? a dream awaiting I can see it in your eye it may not come easy but you know you've got a friend I'll be by your side the entire ride just let me hear you say amen are you doing doing are you doing the best you can